Uh, if you guys want to for this uh, uh, session, you can turn to Luke chapter 4 as we begin. We will be talking uh, about the social gospel for this session. And I think it's fair to read the text of scripture that I think is most often quoted in the New Testament in relation to this social gospel. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 is where I'll begin reading. It's the first sermon Jesus ever preached. And the text for his sermon is from Isaiah 61. And he reads these words, uh, beginning in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sights to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So these verses, Jesus quotes at the beginning of his ministry, and then proceeds to go on fulfilling them in his time on earth. And just reading them, and just uh, seeing the, the words themselves, it won't necessarily shock you, the kinds of conclusions people often draw from these words, uh, conclusions like the gospel of salvation for our sins kind of misses the mark a little bit. And yes, that might be an aspect of it. We have sins. We need to be reconciled to God. But really, if you want to get the gospel right, you need to be about the setting right of social wrongs. So this view would be called the social gospel, so named because of the uh, 19th century theologians who were advocates of it. And this view uh, really began seeing all the brokenness and hurt in the world and, uh, and the reality that Christians felt called to set those things right. And so as a, as a means of spurring Christians on to solving a lot of the problems in the world, such as poverty and, and hunger and um, homelessness and, and uh, children being orphans and, and things like that, um, this view would say that the gospel message, the thing that Jesus came to preach about, the gospel he preaches, is primarily about putting society back together, righting societal wrongs. And there are many people who functionally and uh, very actively preach that kind of a gospel message today. So, such that if you were to go into a good number of churches in Indianapolis, you would hear some message like that on a Sunday. Uh, that you, as a Christian, uh, must go into the world and uh, solve a lot of the problems that you see around you. That's, that's really what it means to be a Christian. That's really what the gospel is all about, is, is setting right social wrongs. Now, just like all of the things we've talked about tonight, uh, there's a lot of really true things in all of what I just said. The issue uh, is when you take true things and make them ultimate things and you push out other things away from the center where they actually belong. So uh, this is a quote from Russell Moore uh, who says it this way. Um, there is a difference between a social gospel church and a church that understands the social implications of the gospel. There's a difference between a social gospel church and a church that understands the social implications that the gospel has. And I think that is really important to understand because there's so much within the social gospel that is actually really sound theologically. 
The idea that Christians are the ones who are called to go into the world and affect change. That's true. Now, it's not true to the emphasis that they would place upon it, but it is true that if you're a Christian, if you have a regenerate heart, if you love the Lord, you will obey his word. And part of what that means is you will, you will act justly in the world. You will seek to help those who are in need. You will love your neighbor. So those, those things are all true of Christians, but the social gospel takes those things and makes them the very gospel itself. So uh, Luke, uh, this, this verse in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19 uh, has become kind of a hallmark of this movement. And because what they say is what Jesus came to do is preach this message of social revolution. So that the early church, were, they were social revolutionaries, turning society on its head, doing away with the Jewish-Gentile divide, doing away with the male-female divide, uh, doing away with slavery. Ultimately, that's you know, where this is headed. And then into our own day, the social gospel takes on flavors of um, sexual liberation. And, and anything that would really oppress somebody is seen as a, a, something that oppresses someone. It, it is to be liberated. That's part of what the social gospel entails. And so we, in order to interact with these ideas as a Christian, you have to understand what's right about it and what's wrong about it. So one of the questions you can ask uh, if you're conversing with someone who might hold these views or you yourself have maybe thought about these things, you can ask the question, how do we know what is wrong that needs to be put right? What is our standard for knowing what is wrong in the world that needs to be set right? For instance, if I was to tell you, you need to affect change in the world, there's this thing that's wrong and you need to make it right. Uh, we might agree on a lot of what that is, such as homelessness, right? Homelessness is a problem. Drug abuse is a problem. Um, fatherlessness in homes is a problem. We might agree on those things, but um, now if I was to ask you what the standard is for those things, you probably have a hard time getting on the same page with someone who might hold these views. But if you're a Christian, these views uh, find themselves rooted in Scripture itself. The reason we know what the world is that the world is broken and in what ways it is broken is because the Bible itself tells us that the world is broken and it's broken in these kinds of ways. So the social gospel gets right that the world is broken, but a correct diagnosis of a problem is not the same thing as a correct cure for the problem because it, it doesn't actually diagnose the problem deep enough. It would be like if you went into... Uh, a doctor's office, and you uh, say you had a, a late-stage cancer, and so, particularly in the case of like leukemia, uh, your your body would hurt, right? So a doc you come into a doctor's office, uh, you present with having being sore all over, easily bruising, things like that, uh, and the doctor says, "Well, I'm going to prescribe for you this pain medication, uh, and uh, that should that should take care of the pain, right?" They've diagnosed, in some sense part of the problem, right? But they've really diagnosed a symptom of a deeper problem. And, and in failing to diagnose deep enough, they fail to actually cure the problem at all, right? They're just masking something that's really brooding under the surface. But uh, they are right in part, right? The pain is a problem. But the pain actually points to something that's more problematic than that. So the, the, the issue with the social gospel is not that it sees a problem in the world. The issue is that it doesn't see the problem deep enough. It doesn't see the problem all the way down to where the problem comes from. Because the problem, uh, you might ask the question, how did the world get broken in this way? How do we get homelessness and fatherlessness and slavery and, and things like that? The reason we get all those things is because of human sinfulness. The fact that humans are in rebellion against God 
And because of that, humans hate God, they hate his commandments, and they hate one another because sometimes they don't get along, right? And so that leads to all kinds of brokenness in the world, right? Why do we have fatherlessness in homes? Often it's because uh, fathers don't want to stick around because life gets hard and so they're going to leave. And so, yes, in, in the one sense, the solution to fatherlessness would be uh, trying to come around families that are experiencing that and love them well. But you're not actually getting to the solution of the problem, which would be to take those fathers before they leave the home and, and have them be regenerate, loving the Lord, loving his word, and wanting to love their families as a result of that. You see the difference? It doesn't get deep enough to the solution. So uh, the, all the solutions of the social gospel are social safety net kinds of solutions. So in order to enact these changes, you need a big government, you need a lot of money, you need big organizations to enact these kinds of things. And the real missional zeal of these people goes, goes towards felt needs being met in the world. But we even know that felt needs, they don't actually solve many of the problems that are underlying those, those felt needs. Such that if you, if you give someone one hot meal, that doesn't actually solve homelessness for them, for example, right? So even many of those interventions don't get down deep enough. But there's a lot that's actually right about this approach to getting Christians uh, on fire for being a force of change in the world. There's a lot that's right about it. And so we don't want to have a pendulum effect where we, in response to this, let's say, aberrant view of the gospel, swing all the way to the other end, like many Christians have done, and say, and say things like, actually, the gospel has, doesn't really have anything to do with social implications in life. The gospel is just me, myself, and, and God. So as long as me and God are right, it's good. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I conduct themselves, my, myself. It doesn't matter what sin I've committed. As long as I'm right with God, it doesn't matter you know, what's going on in the world. And that uh, became, unfortunately, associated with, and I think uh, it was a right association because of some churches who did this poorly, but it became associated with conservative biblical Christianity, that kind of, uh, I believe uh, these core tenets about Jesus, and so I'm saved, uh, but I'm not going to go treat anyone better as a result. I'm not going to go love my wife better as a result of those things. And so you can see how the pendulum swing effect actually also neuters aspects of the gospel. So uh, whereas the social gospel has a wrong gospel, the, let's say, easy belief kind of gospel has a, has a very shallow gospel. Right? So it's actually not a wrong gospel in the sense that you, you actually do recognize the problem of sin and your need to be reconciled, but it's not a very deep, rich gospel that's biblically informed from all of Scripture. Right? So uh, a text like Luke would be a perfect text to point to and show how when Jesus comes to, to liberate people, he comes to liberate them from sinful oppression that they face. But that oppression at its root is the problem of sin itself, which originates in the human heart. Humans themselves are sinful. So when Jesus comes to set the captives free, well, he's setting the captives free from their own sinful hearts, which means he doesn't just, you know, break political systems. He actually has to go die on the cross to make them right with God such that they can be one with God and therefore now reunited to one another. Another uh, text, another prophet that's often cited in, in lieu of this is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So if you'll turn there. By the way, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, they become frequently cited sources for social gospel kind of change because they say a lot of things that sound social gospel-y, but we'll, we'll look at just one example. 
uh, and show how the social gospel actually misses the point entirely of what Micah is saying in chapter 6. So Micah chapter 6, um, so verse 8 is the, the key verse, but I'm going to start reading in verse 6. What shall I come, or with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require with you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Where that verse can also read, to do justice, to love steadfast kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So the social gospel would say, here we have an example of what God requires of humanity, and it is for humanity to do justice in the world, to love kindness, meaning to love one another well, and to simply walk humbly before God. That's, that's what the gospel is all about, is this is what God calls people to do. And if people do this, God will forgive them of their sins, right? The problem with that is if you actually dig down into what the Old Testament means when it says do justice, it's not some generic sense of 21st century Western civilization justice, where what we think is just, we do rightly. Uh, biblical justice has pretty narrowly defined categories in the Old Testament law. The problem, the, the misreading of Micah comes into play here because Micah is a prophet speaking to the covenant people Israel who have been given by God an explicit law of how they are to do justice and they're not obeying that law. So this is not, uh, this is not a prophet of Israel going to Nineveh, let's say, and telling them to behave in a certain way. This is a prophet of God going to the covenant people of God and saying, you worship God, you go to the temple and you do sacrifices, you, you praise him, you, you pray to him, you say you are Israelites, God's covenant people, and yet you abuse your employees, and yet you uh, don't enact the year of Jubilee, and yet you, uh, you take the poor and you exploit them, and you're doing all kinds of wicked things. So this would be like if a Christian pastor was to go to a church where everyone is worshiping the church, everyone sings hymns, everyone quotes Bible verses, but then they go in their nine to five job and they, they act like complete pagans who hate God and who hate other people. That's the context of, of Micah 6. It's not going to a pagan people and telling them, this is how you get right with God. It's going to the covenant people of God and saying, you're not actually in line with the things you profess to be in line with. You see what I'm saying? So, yes, uh, God certainly calls us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before him. But it also means uh, worshiping one true God. That also means recognizing we are sinners in need of salvation. That also, re that also requires us to confess things. Like when Jesus says in the New Testament, he comes to set people free. He doesn't just set people free from sinful, oppressive, earthly systems. He sets people free from their own sinful hearts, their own wickedness, which is the cause of those sinful human systems in the world. Now, the thing we would want to affirm about the social gospel is that the gospel does have all kinds of social implications. If you're a Christian, if you're regenerate, that will absolutely change how you live in the world. That is 100% right about what the social gospel says, that Christians should live differently in the world than non-Christians. The problem is the social gospel takes that and means everyone can do it because it's just things to follow, it's rules to obey. The moral exemplar Christ, what Tim just talked about, is the Christ of the social gospel, right? Christ acts this way, teaches this way, we follow in his footsteps. You don't actually need to believe these things, you just need to follow after him. Consider the New Testament witness on this. R Romans, New Testament letter, 
written by Paul. Huge theological treatise, yes. Romans 1 through 11, straight theology, straight gospel, all the way down to how exactly does justification work. And then it turns a corner in Romans 12, 14, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. And it says, in light of this gospel, here's how you treat one another. In light of this gospel, here's how you love in the world. In light of this gospel, here's how you love other people. Romans isn't the only New Testament letter that has that pattern. Ephesians has its 50-50 split. Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about how sinners are made right with the Holy God. And then 4, 5, and 6 is all how, how do Christians now, who have been made right with God, live in light of the fact that they are now a new creation? How do they interact with the world? How do husbands treat wives? How do parents treat their children? How do children treat their parents? How do masters treat their slaves? How do slaves treat their masters? Right? All of that is implied after the gospel is true. So how do you live as a regenerate person in the world? And Galatians has the exact same pattern. Galatians, a little bit longer section on justification, uh, basically chapters one through five, almost halfway through chapter five, is all about how does justification work? How does the law work in light of God's faithfulness? And then Galatians chapter five, that second half of the chapter and all of Galatians chapter six, is how do you live as a new creation in the fruit of the spirit, walking according to God's commandments? And I'm just giving you a sampling. You can see the same pattern in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. They all follow this pattern. And if you've been joining us on Thursday night, you know 1 Timothy follows this pattern as well, where the first three chapters is all theology and doctrine. And then the last four, three chapters is all about how do you live in light of and how do you practice according with this doctrine that you profess. So the social gospel misses something, but it also keeps something that you can't, we can't just do away with if we want to recover the, the gospel, right? We believe the true gospel that we are sinners in need of being made right with God, but that also means it changes how we live in this world. A key text for this in the New Testament is James, where James says, here is true religion, to love the widow and the orphan. Now, in the context of what James is saying, remember, he's not talking to pagans who have no concept of God and saying, you want to be right with God to take care of widows and orphans and, and you'll be good before God. He's talking to Christians who are saying things like, we believe God, we believe Jesus, and then who are not living as though they actually believe those things. So James is rebuking Christians who profess to know true theology, but don't live in light of that. The context of those letters is super important. So we need both. We need both true beliefs about God and about ourselves, about our sin and our need for reconciliation, and also all of what that entails. If you are a new creation in Christ, it will fundamentally change how you view other people, how you view your work in this world, and how you view uh, your life in general as a, as a cause for change in society. Such that, uh, well, what, what happens if you have a bunch of Christians who are all now regenerate, living in community together, what would happen if that? Well, you'd have something like the abolitionist movement in the, uh, in the European countries, where people who are Christians, who are regenerate, are looking and saying, we cannot enslave people simply because of the color of their skin. And then they have all this social change that results, but the social change was not the end goal. The, the cause of that was regeneration, which led to all kinds of social change. It's the same kind of things you see in the early aspects of the civil rights movement, where you have Christians who are looking and seeing this is wrong, we cannot treat people this way, and then enacting social change. So th the social gospel has, a true, has truly kept the gospel entailments, but it has taken those and it has made it the gospel itself. And so the response isn't to say, well, let's do away with all the gospel entailments. The response is to say, let's, let's be biblical the way we've always been biblical, the way the New Testament calls us to be biblical. So that is the social gospel. Probably a lot more to say on that, but let me just pray and we can go to some questions.
Father, we thank you for your word, which is given to us as a means of knowing you, a means of knowing how we ought to be reconciled toward you, and Lord, also a way uh, of knowing how we ought to live towards one another, that we who bear your image and we who profess your name uh, ought to certainly live as though those were true things and not merely as hypothetical things that we believe. We pray that you would help us towards this end, Lord. Amen.